Open your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. We thank you for your presence. We have visitors with us this evening. We are glad for your presence, each one of you. We want you to know that. I hesitate to call anyone because I might miss someone, but, but we are thankful for your presence. Psalm 51, powerful psalm. The heading of the psalm says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, it is common, even among writers, even among commentaries who have a higher view of Scripture, it is, com- it is common to disregard the titles of these particular psalms. Psalm 18 has a title, and 2 Samuel 22 virtually duplicates Psalm 18. And in 2 Samuel 22, it's part of the text in 2 Samuel, the thing that's in the title in Psalm 18. I don't know if I said that clearly. But think about it. Some are shaking their head no idea. But, but the title of Psalm 18 appears in the text of 2 Samuel 22. That gives me calls to think there's something serious over these titles that we need to take into consideration. So I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt to the title as being part, perhaps even, of the inspired text. When Nathan the prophet comes to David and tells him the parable, which I dealt with in the last time I preached on Sunday night. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, when Nathan comes and Nathan says there were two men in the town, one was a rich man and one was a poor man, and the rich man had many herds and many flocks, and the poor man had one little ewe lamb which was brought up with him as a member of the family. But a visitor comes to the rich man, and instead of taking one of his many herds and many flocks, he goes to the poor man and takes... His only human feeds him to the dead. And David's anger burns and he says, such a man ought not to live. Because he has done this and he's had no compassion. And Nathan says, you are the man. And David says in 2 Samuel 12, 13, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. That is all we really read in 2 Samuel 12 about his acknowledgement of his sin. Psalm 51 shows us how profound his sorrow was for his sin, how deep his appreciation was for the grace of God. Let's read these words, the text. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. 
and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the hidden parts. You will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise by your favor. Do good design. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. In studying this psalm this past week, there were some points I wanted to make and share with the whole assembly. One of the points that Psalm 51 makes about our sin. Our sin, your sin, and my sin is worse than we feel. I know it's common when people are experiencing guilt problems to minimize our sin. The Bible doesn't minimize our sin. It maximizes God's grace. That's the biblical approach. But here David says in verse 3, I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. It was like it's constantly before him. He cannot escape it. He cannot get away from it. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. And then he states that he recognizes that his sin is sin against God. When we sin against each other and we mistreat 
each other. We mistreat others who are created in the image of God. The worst thing about sin is not the harm that we do to one another. It is the wrong that we do to God. As I have pointed out before, in Genesis chapter 3, when the Bible is describing the sin of the woman and the curse that came to her because of her sin. In Genesis 3.16, the Bible talks about, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In the next verse, in Genesis 3.17, when the man is addressed, the man is told in toil, you shall eat of it, eat of the fruit, all the days of your life. The word toil in Genesis 3.17 is the same word pain in Genesis 3.16. The woman's pain in childbirth is matched by the man's pain in labor. And the man's toil in labor is matched by the woman's toil in childbirth. But I'm building up to this. That the same word used of man's pain and woman's pain is used in Genesis 6 and verse 6 when the Bible says the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. It's the same word used for how sin pained God. The worst thing that we do in sin is not the pain that we cause to one another, but the pain that we cause to God. Against you and you only have I sinned. The Bible says, he who despises the poor and reproaches the poor despises his maker. Proverbs 14 31, Proverbs 17, verse 5. The point is when you mistreat these lowliest of people, you ultimately do it against God. Isn't that what Jesus taught in that judgment scene in Matthew 25? Against you and you only have I sinned. And it seems like to the writer, he has been sinful from his earliest moments. Verse 5 is not for the purpose of teaching us that we are born in sin. And I explained that more on the podcast if you all want to listen to that. That's not the purpose of the passage. The purpose of the passage is he is saying he is utterly sinful. He is desperately dependent upon God's mercy and God's grace. Hey, younger people, as you get older, you will look back on little things that are happening in your life right now that seem insignificant, but you know you mistreated someone slightly. And those things will haunt you and those things will disturb you. That is true for small things. That is true in big things. Now, I recognize our world may do wrong things with shame, with guilt. The world may do wrong things with that. But the right thing to do is when we recognize that our sin is worse than we realize is to run to Him for mercy and for grace. 
That's the proper response to our sin, our guilt, our shame, our embarrassment to turn to Him for mercy. In verse 1, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness and according to the greatness of your compassion. Now just in those words I have read from verse 1, just in those words, are three of the most important words in all the Old Testament. Look to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34. Remember the context of Exodus 34. In Exodus 32, Israel has worshipped the golden calf. They have committed a horrible sin. Moses comes down from the foot of the mountain and he hurls, he shatters the commandments that God gave to symbolize the broken covenant between the people and God. But as Moses pleads with God to be merciful and gracious, and he asks, oh God, show me your glory. Show me your face. Moses, God says to Moses, no man can see me and live. I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand. And you will see my back, my afterwards. But you will not see my face. No man can see my face and live. But in response to Moses' request, show me your glory. This is what the Lord does. Exodus 34, verse 6. Then Moses passed by, then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. The most we see of the glory of God in this life is right there. The Lord, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. When Psalm 51 requests that God be gracious, it's the same word gracious from Exodus 34 verse 6. When he says according to your, the greatness of your compassion, that is the same word for compassionate in Exodus 34 and verse 6. And when he says, according to your loving kindness in Psalm 51 and verse 1, it is the same word for loving kindness in Exodus 34 and verse 6. Just as God demonstrates himself as compassionate and gracious and abounding in loving kindness, when Israel worships the golden calf, God demonstrates himself as this, as he forgives the people of their sins, as he shows them mercy and compassion and once again renews the covenant with them as he does that with the whole nation. Now he is doing that with David after David has taken another man's wife and killed that man to cover up his sin. God is showing himself gracious, long-suffering, and compassionate. And the word for compassion is a word that is tied to the word for womb 
And the idea is as a mother has compassion on the child of her womb, that is a picture of God's compassion for us. Sin is front and center in Psalm 51. But grace and God's character and God's mercy is even more front and center in Psalm 51. In the hope of your salvation, in the hope of my salvation, is not that our sins is not so bad, but that His grace is so abundant. Be gracious to me according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. When you reflect on your life, reflect on your lowest moments and not, and by that I do not mean what others may have done to you, but what you have done that's wrong. Reflect on those lowest moments and realize that God is willing to forgive and save. It is an overwhelming fault. It's an overwhelming fault. Sin is a clear reality in this psalm, but God's grace is a more fundamental reality. But God asked much of us. He asked a full surrender to Him. There are many passages that demonstrate this within the psalm. But in Psalm 51 verses 16 and 17, You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God. You will not despise. What does God want when we've done wrong? What does He want of us? Does He want us to give as Micah 6 asks? Our firstborn for our transgression, the fruit of our body, for the sin of our soul. In this passage, we see what God demands is a complete surrender of ourselves and our spirits to Him.
God is not so much wanting the outward sacrifice. That is not a statement that God was not pleased with sacrifices in the Old Testament. That God never desired them. It is not a statement along that line. It is a statement of saying that God wants the attitude of heart behind the sacrifice. And without it, the outward sacrifice means nothing. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. Oh God. You will not despise. When a person is weeping and broken, that is what God wants. A person who is broken because of their sin and desperately looking for his mercy. In Psalm 34 verse 18, the Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Isaiah 66 and verse 1 has this statement. But thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What then is a house you will build for me? And where is the place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, and these are things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. He asked for a full surrender to him. Rend your hearts, Joel said, and not your garments, Joel 2.13. God's forgiveness is complete. It's full. Look at verse 7. Purify me with his son. And I shall be clean. Wash me. And I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. And blot out all my iniquities. Purify me with hyssop. Hyssop is only mentioned ten times in the Old Testament. Over half of those times are in Leviticus 14 and Numbers 19. Those two chapters are dealing with purifying one who has been unclean as a result of skin diseases or leprosy and also touching dead bodies. And if you have been unclean by those in those matters, those are the most profound forms of uncleanness in all the Old Testament. And the Bible used hyssop. The Bible describes hyssop being used in purifying those most intense forms of uncleanness. Purify me with hyssop. And here he describes his sin as if it were being unclean because of leprosy. As being unclean because of contact with a dead body. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. 
When I was growing up, snow was an exciting thing. Because snow meant there was no school. And that was an exciting adventure. And I haven't had a lot of that experience for the last 17 years or so. But I'll tell you, coming back here and seeing it snow, one thing that I had forgotten is just how incredibly bright the snow is. This winter, the time that it snowed about 10 inches, I woke up about 5.30, or I woke up and it seemed like it was full light out there. I thought, did I sleep this long? And I looked at the clock. It's 5.30. It was because our house was open and the whiteness of the snow made it look like it was much later in the day. And that is used as a picture of how God can wash us and cleanse us and make us pure from our sin. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Do you remember in Jesus' transfiguration? One of the gospels said his clothes was made, his clothes were shining so brightly that no one on earth could make his clothes shine that brightly. And think about that is a result of God cleansing us from our sin. Purify me with hyssop. And I shall be clean. Wash me. And I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 9 begs God, hide your face from my sins. One thing the psalmist feared, the psalmist dreaded was that God would hide his face from him. For example, in Psalm 13, in verse 1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? The psalmist did not want God to hide his face from him. But here in Psalm 51, 9, Hide your face from my sins and blot out. Oh, my iniquity. Don't hide your face from me, oh God. But hide your face from my sin. My friend, it is a wonderful thought that all the wrongs that we've done, all the wrongs that we've done and all the wrongs that we've said, and all the wrong thoughts that we've cherished, that all can be forgiven. As Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whom the Lord does, to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. 
His forgiveness can make us whole. And those of us, those of us who have been forgiven so much can go out and tell the news of His forgiveness. In verse 12 and 13, in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. The word that is used at the first of verse 12, restore, the same Hebrew word is used at the end of verse 13, converted. It's translated differently in the English, but it's the same word. But he asked God to restore him that he might restore others, to convert him that he might convert others. But as he is forgiven and as he experiences the joy of salvation, his desire is that he's not going to keep the good news to himself. He's going to teach transgressors God's ways and sinners will be converted. Tell the story of how you've been forgiven. Here the psalmist says he's going to do that to sinners. He's going to proclaim the good news. His tongue will sing of God's righteousness. Psalm 130 verses 3 and 4. The Bible says, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. God's forgiveness is complete. And the forgiven can tell the story of God's forgiveness to others. Quite frequently, I try to preach lessons like this from different texts. Though I have some of the same What I'm trying to do is to demonstrate that whether we're dealing with the Old Testament history or poetry or prophecy or the Gospels or the Epistles, the Bible has a consistent message. A consistent message about the seriousness of sin and the depth of God's mercy. And the fullness of forgiveness. It is a consistent message throughout the biblical text.